Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. One of the one of the challenges that pastors have, and they, they have a few, but one of the challenges is seasons like this, Christmas and Thanksgiving and Easter, where, when you are called upon to bring a, a story from the Bible that people have heard sometimes all their lives and to, to be able to bring something fresh and something new and something that, that will speak to their hearts. And while it is a challenge, I have found, and I know Pastor Gabe has as well, that as you dig into God's word, the Holy Spirit will always be faithful to give you a different camera angle, a different facet of truth that is unchanging. And so today I wanna, I wanna try and do that as we enter into the Christmas season and we're talking about Christmas and, and preparing our hearts for, for Christmas. And let me just state the obvious that Jesus is really the reason for this season. And this season is this season is not about the Grinch. It's not about Santa or Rudolph or any of those things. And for those of you that are in the midst of raising your children, please be very careful as, as we go through the year and all the different holidays, be careful that your children don't unconsciously just slip Jesus into the same bag that holds the Easter bunny and the tooth fairy and those kinds of things. And they just kind of assume it's all sort of make-believe because it's not, it is not. Jesus is real and he's powerful and, and he is distinct and he is unique. And so I just want to talk to you a little bit today about, about Christmas, about preparing our hearts. As Christians, we believe that 2,000 years ago something happened something supernatural, something totally out of the ordinary and something that is humanly unexplainable. We believe that God invaded our world in the form of a tiny baby boy. It's something that had never happened before. It's something that has never happened since. We believe that a long time ago in a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire, a tiny village where there was no room in the inn that a baby was born to a frightened young couple who wrapped that baby in cloths and laid him in a feeding trough. And for many of the people who were aware of what was going on, he was just another Jewish baby. Jesus wasn't the only baby in Bethlehem. He certainly wasn't the only baby that was born that night. Today, around the world, there are approximately 385,000 babies that are born every single day. If you add that all up, it comes to somewhere in the neighborhood. I'm still here. It comes to somewhere in the neighborhood of 140 million children that are born. And while that number would not have been that high 2,000 years ago, we can safely assume that Jesus was one of many thousands of babies that were born on that night. This baby, and no other baby, 
There was something extraordinary about this one particular baby born in this one particular place to this particular set of parents and that baby and no other baby was God in human flesh. What are the chances? When it comes to Christmas, we know that behind the lights and the glitter and behind the decorations and the parties, there is an undeniable historical truth that 2,000 years ago, God became man in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do we believe that, but as Christians, we have staked our lives upon that truth. But what if it's not true? What if it's not true? What if there's nothing there behind the singing and the celebrating? What if Jesus was just another baby? What if... What if he never came at all? What if it's just a story that was made up? When you read the story of Christ's birth, you cannot miss this fact that many people were not ready for his coming. Many people didn't believe it. Even among the people who knew Mary and Joseph, there were those who had their doubts. And so the question then becomes, is it true? Is it really, really true? Did Jesus really come Is he really the Messiah? Is he really God in flesh? Is he really the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who can forgive your sins and my sins, the one who has the power to give us the gift of eternal life? Is he really the one? And so I'd like to turn your attention for a few moments to Matthew chapter 11. And the story here is a story of John the Baptist who is in prison at this time because he has publicly called out King Herod and his immoral, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, whom he has married. Herod is embarrassed. I think even more so his wife is embarrassed. And they cannot believe that this ragged, locust-eating, sackcloth-wearing prophet has the gall to call them out publicly. And so he is arrested, he is thrown in prison, and John the Baptist has a heart that goes right, has a question that goes right to the heart of Christmas. Let me, let me just begin in Matthew 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Here's the question, are you the one? Are you the one? John's having a tough time. God is not behaving the way John expects God to behave. He he was bold. He was a preacher of righteousness. He called people out because of their sin and he was bold enough to call the king out because of his sin. He named him, he called him out publicly. John is arrested, he's thrown in prison. His life is hanging in the balance. And John has this question for Jesus, are you really the one? Because I thought you were the one. When I was on the banks of the Jordan River and you walked up, you know, when I baptized you, uh, the heavens opened, it was the Holy Spirit came down, descended, like something like a dove. It wasn't a dove, but it was like a dove. And there was a voice and I was so sure, I was so sure. And I told everyone that not only was I a preacher of righteousness, but I told everyone that you were 10 times more preacher of righteousness than I ever could be. I wasn't worthy to tie 
the strings on your sandals. And when you came, that you would light a fire that would be unquenchable, that, that unquenchable, that would burn against sin. And when you came, you would come with a hatchet and you would chop not just some branches off the tree of sin, but you would go right for the root. And you would cut the tree down at its root. And now I'm sitting here in prison and you haven't even come to check on me. You haven't visited me one time. You haven't even sent one of your disciples come see how I'm doing. But I think the thing that hurts the most is that you haven't been calling out Herod like I was. And here, I told everybody that you were a preacher of righteousness with flaming fire and you were going to chop this tree down at its root. And so because God is not behaving the way John thinks God should behave, God, God just has a way of getting out of the box sometimes. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. But there are times when we can be left with questions. God, where are you? God, why are things happening the way they are? And those are the times when God wants us to remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. He will make your paths straight. There's some things that we just, we don't have an explanation for. So we trust, we trust God. Jesus, are you, are you really the one? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the incarnate son of God that came as a baby? Bible scholars tell us that in the Old Testament that there are over 300 prophetic references to the coming of the Messiah. If you begin in Genesis and go all the way to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, there are over 300 prophetic references to the coming, the appearing of the Messiah, the incarnation, God in flesh. And they are given in in some detail. And I'd like to I'd like to just take a minute and give you an example of some of the things that I'm talking about. So let me begin, number one, the word of God tells us it is prophesied by the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. It goes even further than that. It, it not only tells us that he, where he would be born in Bethlehem, but other, other, other uh, Old Testament prophets even describe the time that he would be born. Number two, a messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah. Number three, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey. That's not the way kings usually enter the city. Number four, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. The prophet Zechariah tells us about that. Number five, the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Again, Zechariah tells us about that. Number six, the betrayal money would be used to purchase a potter's field, a field where people who had no, no, uh, no money for burial, uh, they could be buried in this field. Number seven, the Messiah would remain silent while he is afflicted and oppressed that he would make no defense of himself. Number eight, the Messiah would die by having his hands and feet pierced 
We read about that in Psalm 22. It goes on, there there are some other references to this that are really unique, and I just want to mention them. I'm not making them a part of the list, but I could. Not only does it say that that the Messiah would be, that, that he would have wounds in his hands and his feet, but but his death, in his death, there would not be one broken bone. Not one broken bone. This is, a, this is a prophetic reference about the Messiah. And it is amazing. And, and it will help you understand why when the soldiers came around to break the legs of the other two thieves, they didn't break the leg of Jesus because he, he was already dead. Crucifixion was a cruel death. They were crucified with their knees bent, their lungs would begin to collapse, and and in their loss of blood and weakness and everything, they would have to push up to take a breath, to inhale. You do that for six hours. And when you want to speed up the death, then you come around and with the staff of of your spear, you break their leg so that they can no longer push themselves up. But the Bible says that the Messiah not, even though he would be wounded, even though there would be wounds in his hands and in his feet, not one bone would be broken. Uh, Number nine, the time of his birth, we talked about that. Number 10, he would be born of a virgin. Number 11, that he would be mocked. And number 12, that he would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich. These, these are all unique and these are all, uh, these are all spelled out for us in the Old Testament. And someone may, may think to themselves, well, you know, some of that could be self-fulfilling. You know, maybe he just read that verse about the Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. So he told his disciples, go get a donkey and I'm going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Maybe, maybe, you know, some of that could be self-fulfilled, but you know, you could believe that if you want, but but there's too many others that are not self-fulfilling because they were given by prophets such as Zechariah, Micah, and Isaiah who lived 700 to 750 years before the birth of Jesus. When you go back to David's prophecies in the Psalms, you're talking about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And when you talk about the, the prophecies from Moses, you're talking about... 13 to 1500 years before the birth of Christ. And those prophecies are simply, it's impossible to self-fulfill those, those things. I want to just take a minute and I want to go through just a few of these prophecies. I'm going to pause on one and then we're going to wrap this up. And, and, uh, and I just pray that God, God would just amaze you with his grace. So here's number one that Jesus would be born of a woman. Now, you might go, duh, but there's a lot of people who didn't go, duh, because in the first and second century, the church was trying to figure out their theology. And they were trying to figure out this whole thing about, you know, God in flesh and, you know, he's, he's fully man, he's fully God. And, and there were some people who came along, some heretics, some false teachers, and they said, well, you know, it, that's impossible. God cannot inhabit a fleshly body. And so the Christ, the Christ, that's just a spiritual reality. He didn't really come in the flesh. He didn't really die in the flesh. That's just a spiritual thing. It's like a spiritual mist. It's like, you know, just a, a feeling. It's just an influence. It's uh, 
It's that sort of, maybe he was an angel, but he wasn't really flesh and blood. But the Bible tells us clearly he was born of a woman. He's fully God, and yet he is fully man. The Bible tells us that he was a descendant of Abraham, and that is just a matter of Jewish genealogy, keeping track of, of the records, and Jesus most definitely was a descendant from the line of Abraham. We get down a little bit further and we see that he was also from the tribe of Judah. And that is significant. We could spend a lot of time talking about every one of these. These are just some that I just randomly picked. But I want you to know that the first couple of kings in uh, that Israel had were not from the tribe of Judah. They were from the tribe of Benjamin. And if you understand anything about human nature, you know that when a king comes to power, one of the first things he's interested in doing is consolidating power, taking care, putting, you know, getting rid of any threats to his throne and being sure that his throne and influence can be passed, his power can be passed down the family line. So it is not an insignificant thing that Jesus would come from a different tribe than the, than the tribe that began uh, as the kingly, as the kingly tribe, he came from the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of David, and this is also very, very significant. We don't have time to spend uh, on it right now, but he was a descendant of David. Number five, he was announced by a forerunner, and this is amazing because Malachi and Isaiah both prophesy that there would be a forerunner, somebody who would come and go before Jesus to announce him, to announce his coming, to say, hey, the Messiah's here, he's on his way, everybody get ready. And it is crazy because they prophesy that he is going to be the forerunner and announce his coming in the wilderness. Now, if you're going to announce something super important, why aren't you at the corner of Kali Saloon and Ambassador Cafferty or Johnston Street? What are you doing out in the cane field? And yet, when we read the Gospels, we read about people emptying out of Jerusalem, emptying out of Jericho and all the surrounding cities in Galilee to come and hear John preach out in the wilderness. This was prophesied 700 years, 750 years before the birth of the Messiah, that there will be a forerunner announcing his coming, and he'll announce it out in the wilderness. That's crazy. It's crazy. And yet that's exactly, exactly what happened. The New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they identified John the Baptist as that very same forerunner. They identified him, no mistake about it. This is, this is the forerunner for the Messiah. Here's number six, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And this, this is where I wanna pause for just a moment. The Bible says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and tells us exactly uh, that city where it would be, but it is just a little bit more complicated than that. The prophet Micah states that Jesus, the, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem, and that is what the high priests and the scholars told Herod when the wise men came and asked Herod, hey, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? And Herod goes, well, I thought you were talking to him. And he, with his insecurity and his fears of a, a rival to his throne, quickly calls the the high priest and the scribes tell me where this uh, Messiah is supposed to be born. And they quote this verse from Micah that he'll be born in Bethlehem. But then Hosea gives us, he puts a little twist in it 
and he prophesies that God would call his son out of Egypt. And you know how the story went. Jesus is born. Herod is upset. The wise men tricked him. They went home another way. And so Herod wants to deal with any threat to his throne. He sends the command out. I want all the baby boys uh, in this region to be slaughtered, to be killed. I'm not going to tolerate having a rival to, to the throne. And so Joseph is warned in a dream to get Mary and baby Jesus and run for their lives. And so they go to Egypt And they stay there for several years until another angelic dream occurs telling Joseph it's safe to go back. The people who wanted the baby Jesus to die, wanted to kill him, are now dead and it's safe for you to return. And so this prophecy from Hosea is fulfilled that God called his son out of Egypt. So that's pretty, that's pretty amazing that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, that God will call him out of Egypt. But then Isaiah puts another twist to it in Isaiah 11, and he says that there will be a sprout that comes from the root of Jesse. And, and the word, the original word there is netzer, netzer. It's the Hebrew word. I might not be pronouncing it right, but you wouldn't know anyway if I hadn't told you. Uh, so full transparency there. But the word, the word is netzer, and it means a sprout. And what's interesting is that there was a city in Israel called Nazareth, which means, literally the translation means sprout town. So think of a bean sprout. You got a sprout that's going to sprout in sprout town. And so this is, this is a, a, another twist to it. And I just want to talk about this for a few minutes because it just, it's just such an amazing thing. Now, I'm going to read you some things that are a matter of history, okay? You can, you can look it up. I can tell you the name of the books I got it from. It's just a matter of history. It reads like a Jerry Springer TV show, but this is God working providentially in this, in this whole process of every one of these, these prophecies about the Messiah are being fulfilled. So, here's where we start. Herod the Great comes to power. He has 10 wives. By the way, every one of those wives comes with a mother-in-law. So, <laughs> he has 10 wives, and he appoints a high priest from the line of Zadok, who is a descendant of Aaron. Mother-in-law number two is insulted. She wants her 16-year-old son to be the high priest. So she appeals to Cleopatra. You remember your high school uh, history, Cleopatra and Antony and you know all of their carrying on and then they ended up in Rome. And so this is who we're talking about. She appeals to Cleopatra who's married to Antony and Antony urges Herod to make his brother-in-law the high priest. But the brother-in-law is very popular and he's greatly loved among all the people there in Israel and Herod is jealous and Herod suggests to the brother-in-law, hey, let's go for a swim. So they go for a swim and Herod has him drowned while they're swimming. So mother-in-law is upset and cries to Cleopatra again and Antony summons Herod to Rome. Herod realizes that he could be executed and he comes to Rome with gifts for Antony and convinces him he's not guilty. He didn't have anything to do with his drowning. And before, before Herod goes to Rome, he tells his sister's husband to kill his wife if he's executed. 
When he returns, his sister accuses her husband of having an affair with Herod's wife number two, but wife number two convinces Herod. It's not true, but she also tells him she found out about his plan to kill her if he was executed. That convinces Herod that she did have an affair with his brother-in-law, and he has his sister's husband executed. And then a little later, he also killed his wife, and then he also killed her mother. Now, I'm not making this up. Again, this is history, and the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. At this point in the story, I think this is just hilarious because that is so bizarre, everything I just shared with you. But at this point in the story, it says this, and I quote, the last years of his life were bizarre. (laughs) There was a lot of infighting between his sons. This was complicated by the fact that he had 10 wives and each of them wanted her son to be on the throne. Herod, extremely insecure and jealous, has several of his own sons murdered when he thinks they might usurp his power and his throne. He changes his will again and again. And finally, in a fit of anger and rage, he changes his will for the sixth and last time, five days before his death. And he names Archelaus his worst son to be his successor. Herod realized that he was so hated that he left orders for thousands of Jews to be killed when he died so there would be mourning and not rejoicing at his death. That did not happen, but there was an uprising among the Jews and Archelaus wasted no time in sending in the soldiers and 3,000 Jewish citizens were killed. Archelaus was ruthless and cruel, and he only reigned from 4 4 AD to 6 AD, just long enough that Joseph would go to Galilee instead of Judah. Let me pick up the story from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. If Archelaus does not take over in Judea, then Joseph would return to Judea and Jesus would not be from Nazareth. There was no way that Isaiah could know this before it would happen 700 years before it did. God ordered every event in history. Every prophecy concerning the Messiah was fulfilled. Can I just pause in the middle of the story right here and say some of you are living in circumstances. You're dealing with an ungodly boss. You're dealing with turmoil and strife and difficulty. You're dealing with a personality and you're praying and saying, God, how in the world can this heathen be used by you? How in the world can can any good thing come from this circumstance, this situation? If God can work through Herod and Archelaus to fulfill his purposes, your problems are not an issue for God. Trust him. So why, why is any of this important? Because we're asking the question, Jesus, are you really, are you really the one? Are you really the one? So let me, just, let me just give you these seven prophecies that I pulled out just for my purposes. And, and remember, I gave you a list of a dozen 
and there's over 300 in the Old Testament, but these seven, that he would be born of a woman, a that he'd be a descendant of Abraham, he'd be from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, announced by John the Baptist, born in Bethlehem and born of a, of a virgin. These are seven different prophecies given by five different people over a period of 1,200 years, 1,200 years, and every one of them were fulfilled at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came exactly as God had planned. While Peter is preaching at Cornelius's house, just before the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his family and friends that were there. Peter says this. He says, Jesus is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. That's why these prophecies are important. Because he's the only one who can forgive your sin and my sin. He's the only one who can give me and you the gift of eternal life. And I've got to know whether he's trustworthy or not. I've got to know, are you, really, are you really the one? Could these prophecies have just happened by chance? Let me just show you how, how these prophecies are connected. These that I just shared with you. Born of a woman. A lot of people fit into that category, right? Right? Are you awake? Yeah. Okay. A lot of, everybody in this room for sure. We're all born of a woman. Okay. A lot of people fit in that category. Descended from Abraham. Well, that narrows it down a little bit. Uh, descended from the tribe of Judah. That's even more narrow. And then descended from David. That's even more narrow. And then announced by John the Baptist. That's very, very narrow. Born in Bethlehem. That is extremely specific. And then born of a virgin. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a category of one. That is a category of one. And only Jesus, only Jesus fits all the details. It couldn't be anyone else. And so, you know, somebody might say, well, you know, that's true, but it just happened by chance. There are people like that. Yeah, that might be true, but it just happened by chance. So, so I want to ask, what are the chances that it happened by chance? What are the chances? And I'm glad you asked that question because there's a mathematician, a physicist and mathematician who asked that same question. His name is Peter Stoner. And instead of looking at 300 prophecies, all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, he just, he just asked, what are the chances that just eight of those prophecies could be fulfilled by one person? Just eight. And after doing the calculations and after having peer review and scientific review, and people who knew a lot more about math than I knew, they all agreed that he did everything the way it should be done, and he concluded that the chances were one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one in one with 17 zeros. If you wanna put language to that, that is one in 100 quadrillion. That's the chances that eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled by one person. Not 12, not 15 or 20 or 100 or 277 or 300 or a little more than three. No, just eight. That is the chance. To, to illustrate that in another way, 
if you took that many, 100 quadrillion silver dollars, you could scatter them over the entirety of the state of Texas and it would come up to your knees. From El Paso to Orange, from Lubbock and Amarillo to Brownsville, everything in the middle. The entire state, two feet deep in silver dollars. Now, if you took one silver dollar and you put a red check on it and you were flying across the state of Texas at 35,000 feet, twice the speed of sound, and tossed that one randomly out the window and it fell somewhere in Texas. And then you get a volunteer some brave, brave volunteer person and you blindfold them just to be sure. And you say, where would you like me to drop you off? The chances of you reaching down somewhere in the state of Texas and picking up that one random silver dollar on your first try, that's one in 100 quadrillion chances that you would get it right. This is not an accident. This is, there's a design behind this. There's a divine plan behind this. Jesus fulfilled every one of these prophecies. When you come to the Christmas story, either it happened by chance or Jesus is the son of God who came to earth, who lived, who died, who lived again, who has the power to forgive me and you, the power to grant us eternal life, this gift. Jesus, are you the one? That was John's question. Are you the one? And you know what's amazing is that Jesus didn't say, well, listen, John, uh, if we scattered silver dollars over the entirety of Israel, you know, uh, up to your waist, you know, Mark 1, and he, didn't, he didn't talk about quadrillions or hundred quadrillion chances. He didn't talk about any of the math or any of those things. What he what he answered John, he told John's disciples, he said, you guys go back and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. That the blind receive their sight, that the deaf hear, that the lame walk, that the poor have the gospel preached to them. What he's saying essentially is, you guys are the evidence. You are the proof that I am who I say I am. You are the evidence. I, I wonder if I were to ask, how many of you have been changed from the inside out by the power of Jesus. How many of you would raise your hand? How many of you would raise your hand if I were to ask, were you delivered from addictions? Were you delivered from depression? Were you delivered from pornography? Were you delivered from, from selfishness and pride and prejudice? Were you delivered and set free? Did God perhaps do a work in you that there were some things you used to love that now you hate and some things that you used to hate that now you love? That God has done a miracle in your heart. Is there anybody like that in here? Just lift your hand real, real high. Just want to see real quick. Because you are the evidence. You are the proof. And when we go into the world, we may never have an opportunity to talk about some of these stats or things like this. But the world will know that the tomb is empty when they see that our hearts are full. So I just want to, I want to close with this. Jesus longs to fill every heart in this room. Every heart. That he longs 
He longs for you to know him in a relationship, not just a religion. The Bible says that Jesus came to restore us to friendship with God. Friendship with God. Would you bow your heads with me? In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray a salvation prayer. And, and as I do, I, I just wonder if, if you're here today and you would say, Pastor Paul, I, I want my heart to be full. I, I want to be a part of God's family. I want to belong to Jesus. I'm tired of going my own way. I, I want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you that happens when we pray. And it's as simple as A, B, C, A. I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. B, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and see that I confess with my mouth. It means I just say out loud with my mouth that I have surrendered my life to the Lordship of Jesus, that I've called on him. I'm gonna lead you in prayer, but, but just before I do, I wonder if you're here today and you want, you want to get in on that prayer. You want to be a part of God's family. You want to experience a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I just wanna know who I'm praying with today. If that's you, would you just raise your hand real quick? Say, Pastor Paul, pray for me. I, I, wanna, I wanna get in on this. I wanna have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Stick it up real high. Stick it up real high. I just wanna see who I'm praying with. I see a couple of people here, right there. Anyone else back here in the corner here, here, back there, here, back, back in the back there, back in the back over here. Thank you, thank you. Hands, hands all over, all over places here in this auditorium all over. Here's what we're going to do. I want to lead you in prayer and I want to invite everyone to pray with us. Let's pray out loud together and let's just put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just repeat after me right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt. You died for me. I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. And I declare that God is my Father, that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that the Holy Spirit is my helper, and heaven is my home. And I pray this in the strong and mighty name of the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, the one and only Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Come on, let's give God praise right now.